0: Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. This is episode 009, Introduction to Homer's Iliad, Book 1, Part 2. Yesterday I didn't have access to my notes, so today I do, and so I'd like to make a couple additions um, to what I said yesterday. So, when we started off talking, we were talking about the fact that Agamemnon had rudely dismissed a character, Chrysus, a priest of Apollo, from his company rudely denying him ransom and trade for his daughter recently collected from the the town of Chrysa. Because of this, Apollo sent plague on the Achaeans, and the Achaeans, after seven days of nothing being done by their leadership, eventually have an assembly called by Achilleus, not by Agamemnon, the leader of the tribes, the general, the war chief, the king as far as we're concerned. So, Achilleus calls this assembly, Agamemnon is present. Achilleus asks for somebody to say something. Calchas steps up. He's their prophet. That means he understands reality well. Calchas says he doesn't want to say what he has to say for fear of someone of superior rank harming him. Achilleus says you need not fear that. Achilleus can back that up and that's clearly a dig at Agamemnon. And In fact, he explicitly says that. He says even if the man who calls himself greatest of the Achaeans, be the man you speak of, then, well, you still need not fear anything. Clear dig at Agamemnon. So, Achilleus and Agamemnon, keep in mind, they've been sort of in contact for the last ten years or so. Uh, Agamemnon's always been far richer than Achilleus, having double the chips that he does, and everybody listens to him. And Achilleus, of course, has won every single battle he's ever fought, because he's so good. So it's sort of like a coach-star player relationship where you don't really know who the real boss is. And again, using the LeBron James metaphor, it's hard to say if he had a problem with a coach. Who would go? Actually, it's it's not really that hard to say. But in this situation, it is. So wow, you know, and uh, so Agamemnon and Achilles have every reason to beef, except for the fact that they're on the same team and beef they shall. Because Calchas, he gives this prophecy. It's the second bad prophecy he's ever given to Agamemnon. Of course, the first one involved the sacrifice of Agamemnon's daughter. And we'll talk about that more when we read Dante together, getting up to the Paradiso. It it has something to do with agreement making and uh, to whom one owes one's first agreement and what it does whenever one breaks an agreement. So, moving forward. uh, Calchas says, well, Agamemnon, you have to give your concubine, your new concubine, your new your." Uh, bright and shiny new concubine back to her father and also sacrifice a hecatomb and that's something I didn't mention yesterday what is a hecatomb? well it comes from the Greek word hektos which means a hundred and and in fact the hecatoncheron uh, will be the hundred handed giants will be mentioned near the end of uh, book one of the Iliad Uh, only time they're mentioned uh, perhaps potentially primordially stronger than Zeus and I'll mention why I say that and what what they most likely mean, probably the primal forces of reality, given their hundred um, hands and fifty heads, so they're they're very wise, but they're stronger than they are wise, which is um, perhaps the difference between humans and primal forces, depending on the time and the humans. So, Calchas gives us bad news. Not only does Agamemnon have to give away Chryseis. Back to Chrysis, her father, but he has to give a hecatomb. is very expensive. It's the most holy sacrifice, the holiest sacrifice that Greek Achaeans can make, and because it is so expensive, a sacrifice—hundred cattle is quite a few cattle. And in fact, by some scholars' accounts, eventually the hecatomb it can be honored by something like eight or nine cows. But the idea, all right, the idea is that it is a massive show of wealth. And then, what do you do with that food that you've just sacrificed? Well, you eat it. And that's really delicious, and that's a show of wealth, too, because most of the time in this time, in uh, reality, not only in Homer's time, but also in the 12th century time, uh, eating meat would not be that common. And you can think of exactly why. Meat's very expensive, hard to preserve. You, uh, <clears throat> If you are in a nomadic society fighting and competing against other people, I mean, when, do you ra- when are you going to raise the cattle? And even if you are raising the cattle, you need to have land, and you need to have the military resources to- to defend yourself. So, well, it's incredible the fact that Agamemnon has this many cows that he can just sacrifice when he is demanded to do so. So he's very rich. Um, And he agrees to that. But as I said, he and Achilleus then start to sort of goad each other on. So first and foremost, Agamemnon says that well, Calcus, all you ever do is bring me bad news. And as far as Calchas is really concerned, that's uh, pretty much true for Agamemnon. Uh, the second thing he says is, man, and this is a real no-no, I love Chryseis, my new concubine, even more than my wife. I I find her in no way inferior in terms of stature or intellect. And, well, Agamemnon seems to actually be expressing at least in sarcasm some sort of concern for his current concubine it's unclear whether his tone is joking and sardonic or or he's being honest here but in either way he's being annoying and a poor leader and that he's coming up with excuses to not do what he knows that he needs to do and so, Achilleus rightly calls him the greediest of men. And that really shows Achilleus' opinion of Agamemnon. Essentially, saying, The only reason you are above me and the only reason we're having this conversation at all is because you have so much wealth because of your enormous greed. And so, Agamemnon will have a, a nippy response right for Achilleus, too. Because Agamemnon says that he needs a new prize. If he's going to give up his prize, and well, Achilleus just keeps arguing with him. And so, well, Agamemnon says, I'll just take your concubine Briseis, whom you just took from Chrysa. Now, Achilleus, fairly, he warns Agamemnon, and he says, listen, buddy, I'm not here because the Trojans are a threat to me. I'm not here because the Trojans have done me some harm. I'm not here because I want Trojan land for myself. I'm only here for prizes and honor. And a concubine, which is this time a possession, is a symbol of honor for him. So if Agamemnon, whom he already has a strange relationship with after several years, dares to besmirch his honor in any possible way, their very feeble connection will be severed. Galah says he will leave the war effort and not come into council either, so he lose his mind and his strength. The Achaeans have no idea how much they need him. All their success has been predicated on his presence. Agamemnon should be aware of this. Let's see what he says. Oh, Agamemnon says, Run, Achilles! Just run like a coward. But even if you do, I will have your concubine, Briseis. And so, Agamemnon, in the most crucial moment of the war yet, rather than placating his greatest, finest warrior, By just doing the noble and honest thing that would likely occur to any leader, he lets his ego, his avarice, his pride cloud his judgment. He he insults the worst possible person to insult in the worst possible way in the moment. It is an utter catastrophic mistake on his part. It's such a mistake that Achilles takes his hand to the hilt of his sword and starts to draw before his hair is pulled from behind. His eyes dart in rage. He's going to kill whoever did this. He sees it's Athena, goddess of wisdom, and she says, Stay your blade, for we the gods love you too equally. And that's a very important thing for Athena to have said, because if she said she favored either one or the other, There could still be blood. And if she says she favors Agamemnon more, Achilleus will likely strike down (laughs) Agamemnon. But if she says she likes Agamemnon less, then Achilleus might well wonder why he didn't get to strike Agamemnon down in the first place. But to say that they love them equally, suggesting that they are both necessary parts of the whole That is what stays Achilles' blade. And because that is what stays Achilles' blade, that is the wise thought that, like a thunderbolt, occurs in Achilles' mind before he acts out his rage and strikes down Agamemnon, which would be a moment which would forever tarnish his glory as the fool who killed the chieftain of the mightiest host ever, rather than helping to defeat the great Trojans. And so then Nestor, the wisest of the Achaeans, steps in. And he, he says something that w- we would not expect to hear. He says, "Achilles, though you are far stronger than Agamemnon, very important that he emphasize Achilles' virtues, especially the true virtues of him, Agamemnon commands more men. And therefore is greater. Boom. That's a major moment in the creation of Hellenic culture. Because that's the transition from a model of leadership, from brute strength, as Heracles represents with his club, which is a weapon indicating the use of Brutal force without necessary skill. And so Achilles, sort of, in a way, though more eloquent than Heracles, is similar to Heracles in that he is predominantly physically gifted. But what gives Agamemnon his strength is not strength at all, though he is a fairly strong warrior, nor wisdom, nor even leadership capability. Um, well... Uncritically stated, we might say, because obviously he has acquired the wealth he has. Agamemnon commands more men. That means more men follow him. That means the larger body of individuals usually defeats the smaller body of individuals, and that this collection of individuals had realized that. And that perhaps as the first individual ever to have summoned so many people together, in fact, the estimates are that the Achaeans outnumber the Trojans ten to one and came on something like eleven 1, hundred ships with fifty to a hundred and twenty people per ship that could be over fifty thousand to a i mean that could be fifty thousand to over a hundred twenty thousand people that he's commanding. And in so commanding, one might imagine that the idea of leadership expanded in the consciousness of man, and that also what a leader became conscious of with such a mass of humans also expanded. And so when the gods say that they love Agamemnon equal to Achilles, that's because he is bringing into consciousness, into their purview, something that they have never seen before, and they want to see how he operates and in fact he and achilles will make many mistakes as you might expect because they both represent types of individuals who excel predominantly but uh or rather they They represent roles which are in themselves perfect, but they are not themselves the roles. And insofar as they're human players of these roles, greatest warrior alive and uh, greatest king alive, they make tons of mistakes, plenty of mistakes. um, As any human does, playing any role, whether it be like teacher, physician, nurse, uh, fireman. Although, as an idea, one imagines perfection with all of these roles, which is why they're held to such high expectations. Obviously, the people that fulfill these roles are going to be uh, um, human and flawed and very much fallible and fall short over and over again. Well, it's the same thing with Achilles and Agamemnon. In fact, a question I may ask at some point will be, do you consider Achilles a hero? And many of you may find that the answer that you come up with is no, which is an incredible thing to say about the most gifted human alive at that time fighting in a war against another people who have wronged a person. And so, well, there we go. So, Achilleus, hearing the news from Athena and from Nestor, takes Agamemnon's symbol of leadership, the scepter, and dashes it to the ground, indicating that Agamemnon is no longer any leader Achilles, Achilles has left the ranks of the Achaeans. There, Agamemnon holds no sway over him, and in fact, Achilles is probably the only person that could get away with doing that. And in fact, he'll remain sort of like a uh, prisoner of his own mind and decisions on the camp for the majority of the text. Petulantly, sullenly, sitting there, dealing with his emotions, uh, not so well either, because. He's apparently the first hero ever to have denied the heroic task in some moment or another, and in so doing, there are profound consequences for him. One does not so easily give up the mantle of hero, because that's his goal structure, and therefore how he values and uh, modifies both his emotions and his uh, behaviors in life. And so, well, he, he really has quite a bit to think about now. And so Nestor... With his words of honey, suggests, and as he often does before he speaks, that because he is old, he is wise, and he's seen things that nobody else has seen. One might say that that's a major criterion of wisdom. And he tells the story of greater men. The point of the story seems to be, Agamemnon, do not take Briseis. And Agamemnon... As we mentioned in episode zero zero eight, says no to his own detriment, and to everybody else's as well. And so Achilleus then says he will give up the girl to Agamemnon. That will be the last order that he follows, but he will not give anything else. And if Agamemnon should come and demand anything else, he will meet with Achilleus's blade. Which I would say steel, but they didn't use steel nor iron. At this time it was uh, the Bronze Age, so they used bronze, which if you say is that very much malleable? I would say, yes it is. It is very much an inferior metal. And so, often you'll hear about their armor and their weapons being bronze. And on their armor, their armor is not like um, knight's armor, not chivalric, not uh, that that full plate steel stuff, or not steel, but iron, or whatever it's made of, I'm sorry, um, that's so heavy in the Middle Ages. Um, the armor of the Achaeans mostly allows for dexterity, agility, and motion. They wear leather armor. If it's wealthy leather armor, often it has metal plating on the outside or gilded metal on it, but it's not metal through and through. There's no full tin, cobalt, bronze, silver, or gold armor, though armor of Achilles later on and armor of Glaucos will be described as gold. So look out for that. Um, The Achaean measure method of fighting too was mostly ground warfare with spear and stone and sword and people have often asked why stone and i say well if you don't want to die by someone's hand a good way of doing that is throwing a projectile at them and that frequently will happen in the iliad so once one dispenses with one spear if there is a stone handy and this is why we throw shot put in the olympics uh well, you throw it at the person and you can do some serious damage. We'll see it happen multiple times. Hector will get hit by a stone. Aeneas will get hit by a stone. Uh, even Ares will get hit by a stone. All sorts of people are going to get hit by stones. So, um, and actually when we cover the Aeneid in, I don't know, 50 lectures or so, we'll see a funny riff on this in the very final battle between Turnus and Aeneas. So, Achilles is out of the war. He's not going to be helping any at all. And this will have immediate consequences. So Odysseus, cleverest of the Achaeans, is given the job to return Chryseis to Chrysus. He first has to go sacrifice a Hecatomb on a nearby island. I believe it's uh, Chrysa that he goes to. And so while he's doing that, Agamemnon... Sends two of his heralds. Heralds are people who announce others. And now, as these two poor heralds, Talthybius and Euripides, approach Achilleus' tent, one might imagine their terror, their two lowly heralds. Achilleus is the greatest warrior alive. And he is furious. And yet Achilleus shows a differentiation of character one might not expect As the two enter, Achilles welcomes them and indicates that he knows it is not their fault, that they're just doing their jobs, showing his own potential for leadership, one might suggest, Um, and his best friend Patroclus, and we'll talk some about their relationship, then leads Perseus to the heralds and gives her back. And so this utterly terrifying situation that the heralds were in that Seemed as if it might be like meeting a dragon to take a treasure that they don't even get to keep that's not for them. Well, it turns out to be a fortunate situation in which they get to meet this great warrior, spend a moment with him, and receive his kindness. (laughs) Which is not the sort of interaction one single Trojan will ever have with Achilles. And so that's sort of interesting that Those on his side, even while he is not happy with his side, receive his kindness, just as those who we will see on the battlefield laid on in the book receive his utter hatred and the full force of his strength. So something we ought to know about Achilles is that he is a bit of a mother's boy. And what do I mean by that? So he's raised by his father Peleus. And then in certain traditions, he's then raised by Charon the centaur, who teaches him the medical arts, how to hunt, how to fight, how to hold a spear, uh, all manner of athletics, how to speak as well, and he does speak very well. In the Iliad, it seems as if actually the person who does this is a character named Phoenix, who will be introduced in Book 9 during the assembly to Achilles. But regardless of any of that, Achilles doesn't really grow up with his mother, because um, there are multiple accounts that his father, Peleus, or Peleus as he's called, um, freaks out while he sees Thetis immortalizing Achilles, or rather invulnerabilizing, um, invincibilizing, making invincible Achilles either in fire or in water, some sort of baptism, and of course we say baptism by fire and water, depending on whether we mean purification as cleansing or purification as burning away um and so because of the fright that peleus showed he showed a lack of trust in his wife and because of that trust she forever left him so achilles grew up without a mother and that's something that one might understand being semi-divine to mean in this case because effectively speaking you grow up without a parent and so who could your parent be it's essentially a god right And so one might imagine that that's what having a divine parent does mean. Um, And that it it gives one a certain perspective on the world, and I'd say gifts, and perhaps Achilleus is led to be so strong, precisely because of that internal motivation, that nature moving him. But in this case, in the context of the Iliad, his mother did not help to raise him much, but does help him to acquire his greatest possible divine gifts later she'll give him armor um, and right now she's going to secure him exactly what he wishes for though he may not wish that he wished for it in the future so Achilles summons his mother and she a Nereid daughter of Nereus amongst 40 others or so comes out this time alone from the ocean not the ocean the sea sorry and then she says my son what's wrong and He essentially summarizes book one and says what's been happening. That Agamemnon has been most unfair to him. and She bewails her poor son, so filled with misery, though he lives so little time. And I think that's so brilliant that Homer has that in there. Because what is that lamentation but the lamentation for us all? That we live for such short lives. If only we would play our roles with happiness and joy. We would do so much better than if we allowed resentment and misery to enter our spheres, that it does seem to be us humans who cause our own misery. And in the Odyssey, that will be the first thing that Zeus says in the first 40 lines or so. It might be line 37 in the Lattimore translation. So, Achilles makes a request of Thetis, a request that he will come to regret in the future. He says... Mother, if you, as you have often said to me, truly do have a favor owed you by Zeus, ask him thus for me. Do harm to the Achaeans, while I am absent from them, that they might know the consequence of trifling with my honor. Thetis is none too happy about this request, already knowing the ill consequences that it will surely lead to, and the m- greater misery that achilles will suffer because of this. But she, of the silver feet, like a thought that leaves not a mark as it moves, traverses up to Olympus. On Olympus she meets Zeus, the great father of the gods and man. And there she entreats him on behalf of her son. She says, Great Zeus, remember the time that you were bound by Athena, Hera, and Poseidon. And I brought the hundred-handed, fifty-headed giant Briarius to save you. You said then that you owed me a favor, and now I'm here to cash in. And so one thing one ought to know is that Homer often makes up his own mythology or changes it in ways necessary to help his his narrative structure. So he probably makes up this story in order to give a reason for Hera, Athena, and Poseidon all to be on the same side of the battle. And so there will be a few instances, and I'll mention them when they come up, where uh, Homer seems to just change up mythology. The study of Meliagros and the Caledonian boar is another instance. Um, uh, The changing of the Niobe's number of children and her uh, eating food in Book 24, that's another instance. And um, uh, changing Phoenix for Chiron for Achilleus's. Um, Teacher, that's another instance. There are several instances over and over in the text, and I'll I'll bring them up every time we run into them. So, Thetis wants to cash in on what Zeus owes her. Well, Zeus does owe her, and he will make good on his agreements, but the problem is, is that he's married to Hera, Hera is sort of a thorn in his side in the same way that he's sort of a thorn in her side. He's constantly cheating on her, and she's constantly discovering him cheating on her and then punishing him and the people he cheats on with in various ways. So they don't have the, the easiest marriage, but you might imagine that if you were married to somebody immortally without even death parting you, that you might drive somebody well insane as well. If you also consider that hera represents mother nature and its permanent conjunction with society or that which orders society the mind and its motive influence on and through nature you might consider also why there you might understand better why their relationship is so fraught with chaos because though it does maintain order there are constantly anomalies upsetting its proper function and you might say that that's the constant interplay of society and nature Always sort of like how you might want to go out and be with your friends, and that's great socially speaking, but you can't be going out every night because well it, it, it's it's hell on your liver uh, or something like that um, and so that, yeah, as a small example that would be that would be an interesting uh, <laughs> interplay or conflict between society and um, nature there in the form of basic biology and digestive science um, so Zeus does not want to anger Hera, but he does need to honor his word. So he nods his head and an earthquake shakes Olympus. Hera immediately zooms up to see Zeus and gets in his face, which is not a very wise move on Hera's fault but, or our part, but Hera doesn't much care what's wise in this situation or not. because She's his wife. And she'll have her say. So what does she say? She says, Zeus, I just saw you nod your head to Thetis. There was this earthquake, and um, I know you are always conspiring against the Achaeans whom I love so much. What is it that you just talked about with that woman? And something you might be interested to know is that Zeus and Poseidon— at one point did want to take the hand of Thetis, but there was a prophecy about Thetis that the son she bore would be greater than the father. And, well, Zeus is the king of the gods and the principle of order, and he does not much want to be overthrown as he overthrew his father, Kronos, who overthrew his father, Uranus, the heavens. And so, well, they decided to give Thetis to a mortal, because no matter how strong a man is, Achilles, for example, He'll never be as strong as a god and therefore always subject. So, there it is. And so, Hera accuses Zeus of having done something that he did do, and he responds very much annoyedly, saying, Listen, Hera. If you don't get out of my face, this is a paraphrase, of course, you will never be further from my heart than you are now instigating and getting in my business. In fact, Hera, and this is a little closer to the original, some of my thoughts are just too heavy for your head. And so, how about this? How about I tell you the things that I need to tell you that you can understand when I choose to tell them to you? Hera does not much care. For this sort of response, however, something mediates between them, and you might imagine that this is what mediates between society and nature. It's Hephaestus, and he bumbles along because he has a limp, or shrunk, he has a limp leg or shrunken legs, and that's either a birth defect or comes from having been thrown off of Olympus, either by Hera, due to having been ashamed of him, or by Zeus which is slightly more likely because it's mentioned multiple times within the context of the Iliad. Hard to say what which account Homer would agree with. But art mediates between society and nature. What do I mean by art? Hephaestus is the god of crafts and craftsmanship. and In fact, he has built all the Achaean homes. and In fact, he's built his own workshop where he, he makes armor and swords, all the tools of man. So he represents the art of man. He even uses fire, his name in... Uh, The Roman tradition is Vulcan, from which we get volcano. So he is the potential force or the power, energetic force of human creativity in the world, given form. And so, boom, that's what he represents. And why he's imperfect is because human art is always imperfect in its mediation of society and nature and all things that we produce as they're mixed with material and subject to entropy and soon to fade, and also come from our limited perspectives, tend to be flawed. And so Hephaestus is flawed as well. And so what does he do in order to placate all the gods and make things easier? He suggests to to Hera, he says, Mother, do remember last time you and father fought. What happened is, I tried to get between you two, and he threw me off Olympus. And in fact, his fall off Olympus, which took a solid day and took him nine years to recover from, while being cared for by Thetis and Eurydome. Well, that's, that's actually why Thetis is owed another favor by Hephaestus that you'll cash in on later for some nice armor. Well, that is the fall on which Lucifer's fall is based in Milton's Paradise Lost, which we'll talk about in, well, in some time from now. And so, he then fills up the cups of the gods, and the, cut, the the gods, indicating their immaterial nature, they drink nectar and eat ambrosia, not in the way that we do, but some sort of golden nectar and some sort of ambrosia. It's just it's not real food. And so... Or rather, material food, the way that ours is. Of course, they smell the uh, meat that gets sacrificed to them. And Caden, something of a sophisticated understanding of what they must have been to the Greeks. And so, all the gods, as Hephaestus is bumbling about carrying the drinks in order to placate his parents, start to laugh at him. And I always think that that's sort of a funny or a sad moment, because... They laugh at him because of his imperfection, because they are perfect. And perhaps what that means is that the only way that humans ever can mediate between order and chaos or society and nature and live a meaningful existence is by bumbling about and doing their best placate the two natures that move them, the underlying nature and the the overarching society. And that in doing that, we we cause constant amusement to the gods, but with deep meaning in our own existences, one might say. And in so pontificating, we end Book 1 of the Iliad. And so... This has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. We are one book through 24 books of the first great epic of the Western civilization. Stick around and look forward to Podcast 10 coming up soon. Please share, subscribe, comment, call in. I look forward to hearing from you.